0: You are listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I didn't want the worship to end. How many of you people felt like that? My goodness, the presence of the Lord. Jesus is here. Thank you, Lord. My, my goodness. Well, we have with us this morning, Dan Kiesler. He is the founder of Unified City Church, which was planted nearly 12 years ago up in North Wilkesboro. And he and his wife, Kara, felt a clear call to pioneer again. They feel the Lord has called them to Charlotte, and so here they are. They moved here over the summer, and they're praying into what's next. So they have two sweet little children, Ellie, who is three, and Isla, who is two. And they have been attending the church here for the last month and feel like they've found a family to journey with. So, let's welcome a good friend of mine, Dan Kiesler.
1: Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. Thanks, Bud. Awesome. Um, well, I think it's only fitting just to honor this guy uh, just for a moment. How many guys appreciate Robin and Donna? Um, I think we first met. It's been longer than I think I realized. It's been like nine years when we first met. Um, and I was a younger pastor at the time and needed, uh, supervision. And so, uh, somehow met Robin. I think I remember calling you and we met somewhere maybe in Mooresville because I needed advice on a situation. And so, uh, it's been quite a long journey, more than I realized. And so just to be here today is very, um, just, Humbling and, and special to us. We we love you guys. We love the heart uh, of this place and just the more we've got to spend with Robin and Donna and some of the team here just to hear the heartbeat behind it. We've we've just fallen in love with the with the culture and the mission here. So uh as Robin said, we planted a church, I say accidentally in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, about twelve years ago. Um it's accidentally still going on, which is great. Um we didn't know what we were doing or how we were doing it. We just showed up just to meet with Jesus. And next thing we know, uh, a church was born. Um, And I think that's probably the most important thing we could do this morning is to remember that we're not here for church. We're just here for him. And when we come for him, all of our agenda yields to his. Um, So I want to pray for us this morning before we dive in. Father, um, God, we acknowledge that you're in this room. Father, we acknowledge that you were in this space before we were and god in this environment we don't have to do anything to get you to come we don't have to try really hard we don't have to twist your arm to be with us but father you came to be with us and god i'm thankful that the very essence of the gospel reveals that you made the first move toward a humanity that in their own strength couldn't move and God, I thank you that that's still the foundation of our relationship today is a God who comes before we even show up or are, are or even aware of your presence. But God, I pray more than anything as we talk about your word, Father, I pray that we would not leave this place without an awareness that we've sat with you, that we've been with you. And we love you. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hey, one time, give the worship team a hand. Phenomenal. So good. Um, I wanted to crawl up in a ball in the corner and just sit there. I didn't want to. so, um, I want to dive into uh, just a couple passages this morning and really just stay in the lane of the gospel. Anytime I'm somewhere for the first time, that's just who we are and what we value deeply. And I just really believe that the greatest revelation coming to the church is not what God's going to do, but it's what he's already done. And so we can never hear the gospel enough. And the more I camp around the gospel, the more I realize I still don't fully get it uh, even in my own understanding or my heart and so as we pursue that this morning I want to open up with this passage in John 1 10 and just in light of Advent and this theme of expectancy I imagine the culture uh, and the context in the day of Jesus that Jesus is coming and no one really knows that he's coming I mean there's been prophetic words there's been unctions but there's really no understanding and the God of the world shows up, cloaked in his own humanity. And he shows up into a people who were, quote, expecting him to show up. But the truth is, they've expected him for so long, for literally centuries, and he hasn't shown up, that probably at this point, even though they were familiar with the idea of him coming, they probably, probably weren't really expecting him anymore. They weren't living in a way that they were expecting him. And here comes Jesus, God in the flesh. And he shows up concealed in the fabric of his own humanity, peering through, looking just like them. And no one knows except a couple people. And I love this passage because I can only imagine and wrestle with the tension uh, that could have been God's heart. But it says this in <clears throat> John 1.10, it says, He was in the world. And though, <clears throat> and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I want to read this one more time. <clears throat> Think about this. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is God, right? This is the one who formed and fashioned everything. Everything that would be made that was made was made by him and through him. When without him, nothing was made that was made. And the maker of everything that was made shows up into what was made. And no one knows that the one who made it is sitting there. And no one could fathom nor would they expect that he would be the one who would show up not in some triumphant political display of military might and power like some probably thought he would. But he shows up at the dinner table breaking bread with people. Who were the outcast. Of their own culture. He comes to his own creation. Surrendering. His deity. To the vulnerability of a beating heart. And no one knows. No one knows that they're having lunch. With the one who formed and fashioned the world. And I love these glimpses. Of God's patience because. Because. He was never in a hurry to get humanity, quote, there. Jesus shows up, and God in the flesh does life with people. He just came to be. Now, obviously, there's a redemptive narrative in the gospel, which we'll peer into, but it's fascinating to me that God comes not in a hurry, but patiently comes just to be with that which is own, and they don't even know. Now, um, as Robin said, we've got two daughters. One is Ellie, who is three and a half, and one is Isla, who is two, neither of which sleep at night. Oh, thank you so much. Um, but one of the things I'm wrestling with as a younger father is rejection, okay? And I'm going to see a counselor for it. But the worst thing in the world for me, and it happened during worship today, so... I'm reminded of my, uh, just, you know, lack of qualification. But the worst thing in the world is when my daughter wants mommy and not me. It's rejection, right? Because sometimes I just want to be needed. Like I want to feel like I've got worth and value, right? And so sometimes I want to be there when one of my kids fall down or what, or whatnot or, uh, and they just, no, we want mommy. And that's the worst thing in my life right now. To come to my own and want to be there for my own and my own not even recognize the heart that I have for them or not even need me or not even really probably want me and actually probably thinks it's funny. She kind of rubs it in my face sometimes. But man, it's crushing. Right, I can only imagine and wrestle with the tension of God's heart. Now, he's a better father than me and has a counselor built in called the Holy Spirit. So he's doing better and he's kind of set up for success where I'm not. Uh, but I can only imagine the feeling, the weight of God's heart to come to his own. The ones that he views as sons and daughters and not this byproduct of some fall that just corrupt a bit, corrupted them. But the one who saw them through a lens of redemption from the foundation of the worlds, He comes to his own and they don't even know. And he simply wants to be there with them and for them. And they're rejecting him. I can't imagine the weight of God's heart. And you see it time and time again in the story of Jesus who sits with people. Who all, although they profess God with their voice, their hearts. Can't even tell when he shows up. Because they didn't expect him to come the way that he did. They didn't expect God to show up and be vulnerable to a young mother. To show up as a crying child just like they all did also. They didn't expect him to show up and need his own creation to sustain his life. They couldn't fathom that the God of the universe would show up and be so human and so much like them... They didn't expect that, right? They expected this triumphant Jesus coming in on a unicorn full of military might to some maybe think overthrow the Romans, others just to liberate them, but they had all of these beautiful ideas and preconceived elaborate stories in their mind. And here comes God in the back door of his own creation crying as a child, needing a mother for years. And there is God patiently evolving and growing under the canopy of humanity. And no one really knows. And no one recognizes. The gospel is so deep. And it's woven by a God who's not in a hurry to fix you. But a God who just wants to be with you. Right? And Jesus comes and he's not... Fixing every, he's fixing a lot of things, which is part of the story, but he's not in a hurry to fix everyone and everything. He sits there and he does life with people because the way that he saw his own was different, right? And I love one of these passages, this John uh, chapter number 8. It's one of my favorite glimpses of the gospel, but I want to tell you the story really quick of our oldest daughter. A lot of dad stories because that's just where we are in life. Um, but a three and a half year old, I, re- I remember when she was very young. And I think it was probably the first time she had gotten sick. And just a little note about me, I'm not like a germaphobe at all, but I'm a grossophobe. So if something's gross, I don't really, I'm not in. But if it's germy, I don't really care. Um, but if it's gross, I'm out. And so this was one of those moments being, you know, a father for your first couple of years. Everything's kind of gross, right? And so you're learning all of that. It's beautiful, but it's also uh, challenging. And so um, one morning, uh, Ellie decides that she's going to be sick. And I think it was the first time she was sick and wearing it, right? If I can say it like that in church. I don't know how to say this in church. Um, but she was sick and she's oozing the symptoms, right? And they're just everywhere. It's just the faucet is on. And I thought, oh, my heart for her, I don't want her to have to feel sickness. What a weird world we live in, you know. And so I'm struggling there, needing a counselor again, and she, here's what she does though. She's oozing it and she's like just wearing the symptoms of her sickness and here's what she does. She comes to the living room and she turns to me and she reaches. And he, if I'm honest, it was only like a tenth of a second, but it was long enough that I was aware there was this slight hesitation of, ew. Like, ah. Now, it was only a little bit because my love for her far outweighed whatever she was wearing. So it was only just a glimpse. And here's what I did. I got up. Because this is my dopamine fix. I realized someone needs me. So I thought, man, this is my moment, right? So I get up, I stand up from the couch and, you know, I'm really tall. She's really short. So I had to stoop down. And here's this little girl who's experiencing the uh, flow of sickness for the first time, needing daddy. And so I come down and she's reaching for me and she just runs. And all of a sudden just couldn't have done it better. Nose dives right into daddy's black shirt. And it's all over me, right? Now, at this point, I'm over the fact that it's gross because I'm so entrenched in my heart for her. But I stooped down, reached out my arm. She runs. She nosedives, and I embrace her. And I remember getting back up. I sat back down on the couch, and I thought this is the best moment I can remember in a long time, right? That was gross. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I wasn't worried about what was on her getting on me because the value I had for her far outweighs the thing that was on her. The way that I view her and the way that I feel for her far outweighs the symptoms that she carries. Because here's what's true about her. She's my daughter, right? She is my own. Let's phrase it that way. She's going to be that no matter what. She does no matter what she carries no matter what symptoms may arise her identity as my daughter will never change and therefore my heart as a father will never change it might be challenged but it won't change and how much greater do you think the heart of our father is who has a much more perfect version so that when he really says he comes to his own. We really are his own. So I'm convinced if we could really see ourselves the way the Father does, it would change everything about how we approach him, about how we do life, about how we view one another. It would literally change the world if we could really capture the Father's heart for us. And this is one of those moments, John 8, where Jesus... And all of his mysterious ways are dumbfounding people. He's challenging people. Again, the context is religious culture. It's entrenched with this idea that uh, God is just all about rules and regulations. And even though God has intentions, the way that you get there is not going to be through some Mosaic law. It's going to be a different way. And that way shows up through the incarnation of God in the flesh. And he's standing there and people even though they disagree with him, are magnetized to him because something's deeper in who he is that's tied to who they are. That even in disagreement, they're curious about Jesus. And this culture obviously who had expected a messiah many times and many fake ones had come and gone so this was nothing new except this one's kind of healing the sick raising the dead and someone said he walked on water so that's kind of a big deal and it's a little bit different but here they are and it's not really a new narrative but it's a different player and this player is more intriguing than all of the others and they're always trying to trap jesus test jesus figure jesus out Because they can't deny that there's something on his life that echoes with the DNA of who they are. Even though they might want to resist it. There's something about his nature that's drawing them in. And there he is with his own and they don't know. And they expected something different. I love this story. John 8 verse number 2. It says, now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus stoops down. And he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not even hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down, he wrote on the ground. Now, I'm going to go ahead and solve this in case you're wondering. I have no idea what he wrote on the ground. So we're not going to answer that question. This, I mean, I know the answer. I just can't tell you, but I'm not going to do it publicly this morning. It's not what the message is about. But again, he stooped down, he wrote on the ground, verse number 9, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. This is a powerful moment. And I love this story because it gives the whole spectrum of the gospel. It gives you the full display of God's heart, the way that he views us, the way that he approaches us, the way that he rescues and redeems creation that obviously had symptoms. But it's also a story about her perspective catching up to his. And here's Jesus, he's this mysterious miracle worker, and some are uttering that he might be the Messiah. There's buzz going around, his ministry is growing, he has thousands of people showing up wherever he goes, and he's impacting culture. There's nothing more dangerous for those in charge when someone has their finger on the pulse of culture, because culture can change everything. God is in the flesh and he's walking with them and they have no idea because they weren't expecting him to look like this, and they weren't expecting him to act like this. Jesus shows up, and here's one of the things I uh find crazy about this passage is they 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 bring the woman to Jesus and they actually use their standard of truth, which was contextually the law, the law of Moses, and they say, Jesus. Here's what the law says. It says we should stone this woman. Now here's the horrible part. They were right. They were right. It was the right truth contextually like their understanding of the law and how they built culture in their society i mean this was like a saturday afternoon for these guys to pick up rocks and hit somebody with them this wasn't out of the ordinary they were right in their culture the way of thinking understanding of the law they were right they had the right truth but they had the wrong way right right Because the real way was standing in front of them who would be the way, the truth, and the life. It wouldn't be just one without the other. And God always knew that the right way for humanity to be redeemed was not some letter written on tablets of stone. But when God himself would show up and do life with his own. And even though they didn't know that he was there, everything was changing. Because the right way was standing in front of them. And Jesus stands there as the way, the truth, and the life. And I can only imagine if this would have been the Messiah in their mind, they would have expected him to reinforce their version of the truth. Right? They weren't expecting Jesus. Couldn't possibly be the Messiah unless he gets on board with what the law says and how we do things because that's how God is represented in the world. They couldn't even almost fathom the idea that God would come and represent himself in meekness and humility. That God would come and represent himself in a way that would sit with a woman at the well. In a way that would be the guest of sinners, the Bible says. There's no way God would come and do that. God would get on our side. He would do truth our way. He would weaponize the truth with us. God would pick up a rock. And they didn't expect God to show up like this. But God wasn't looking at the symptoms of a woman. He was looking at a daughter. They couldn't see that, and she couldn't either, but he always could. Everything Jesus was would would do throughout the Gospels was a full representation of who the Father had always been, but the lens of humanity was warped. They knew about God, but they never really knew him. That's why he could come to his own, and they don't even recognize him. Because how could God be so loving? How could God, even though there's moments, man, Jesus had abrasive moments and he brought truth in a way, but he brought something that they wouldn't dare associate with God. The way he loved people who in their culture would have been stoned, man, they didn't expect that. And where they had weaponized the truth, Jesus was disarming it. They had right truth sometimes, but they had the wrong way. And Jesus comes to show this way of the Father and to represent what the Father had always been, but humanity had never been able to see. See, Jesus Jesus wasn't responding to the symptoms of this woman. He was responding to a daughter. His view for her determined his response to her, Right? no one expected that you understand that when god sees us you're not the byproduct of the afterthought of some failed creation narrative but the intent of the father for your life has always been to be the son or the daughter of who he is to be his likeness and his image to be the one that literally bears his nature And that intention's never changed. So when he comes in the Gospels as God in the flesh, everything was driven by that view and understanding of who we are to him. He comes to his own and they're missing it. They're not recognizing it. I love this passage because it says that they test Jesus. Jesus, what do you say we should do? Should we throw rocks? And Jesus disarms them. And I love one of these just moments, and again, I don't know what Jesus wrote here, but I love this just kind of, I wouldn't, I don't think it was arrogance, but it's funny. Jesus just stoops down, the Bible says, and he writes on the ground. And it says in this passage, as though he didn't even hear, right? Now, this is what love looks like and for the first time his own are getting a uh, close up view of what love in the father's definition always looked like and when love shows up and there's accusation and there's condemnation and there's stones ready to be thrown at someone's symptoms because they're oozing this sickness that they are carrying and they're so afraid of it getting on them but god shows up in the flesh and here's what love does it acts like it doesn't even hear the accusation you see love does not allow someone else's opinion or accusation or condemnation to ever define the identity of a son or a daughter and no matter what she had done or what they thought about it it would never change the reality that she was a daughter a creation his own it would never change You understand that whether or not my three-year-old has a cold, the flu, or paints her face purple, it does not change who she is to me. And even if my three-year-old, and she's not going to do this in Jesus' name, but even if she came in the door uh, tomorrow and said, Dad, I hate you, I disassociate with you, I don't like you, guess what? My view of her still doesn't change. There might be tension in my heart, there might be struggle because i want her to know my heart for her but it never changes because who she is to me will never change and the father shows up in jesus to his own to reveal who they've always been to him but no one ever knew no one could ever fathom nor would they expect a messiah to come like this right the bible says jesus comes and he Stoop down. They bring the woman. Jesus stoops down. You understand that the incarnation, which we celebrate in this season, and you even see it in this picture, this is the finger of God riding on the dust of humanity, its value. Because what he did was he stooped down from this position of comfort in heaven. He could have stayed God at a distance. He could have stayed this elusive Yahweh that they could never quite uh, get the system right enough to get to. But he didn't. He left his throne. He left his seat. He left that place of comfort and made himself vulnerable. He stooped down. Another translation says that he lowered himself. He stooped down to become just like us. To get that close to us. To get that close to the symptoms of an aching humanity. To get that close to symptoms that most people in the religious context did not even want to associate with nor get on them. And Jesus stoops down to get so close. Because he wasn't coming for the symptoms, he was coming for his daughter. He was coming for his own. And he's in the middle of coming to his own and they don't even recognize that their father is present, right? And I can only imagine they're frustrated when Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't get excited that they caught one, right? They were totally excited. And Jesus isn't even responding. So as he stooped down, he wrote on the ground, I'm going to read this again. As though he did not hear. And they pressed on. So when they continued asking, asking him, he raised himself up. And he said to them, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again. You understand that the incarnation, like Jesus comes. And it's not just Jesus. This is the father through the son. Jesus even says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Creation's getting a first view of the father. They never really knew what he was actually like. They knew about his stuff, but they never really knew him. And this is the first time he's up close and personal, and they're missing it. They don't recognize him because he's nothing nothing like they thought he would be like. See, the incarnation blurred the lines of what they thought he was versus what he really was. And he stoops down, he becomes like us, but this is my favorite part of the gospel. Because Jesus said, he said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. The greatest reconciliation moment in history and throughout eternity when Jesus was lifted up at the cross. He wasn't just dying for us, he was dying as us. He came to trade places. And this isn't just the moment where he took some nails and let out a cry and paid for the sin. This was the moment where he saw that there was a aching humanity. He saw his daughter had symptoms and he said, you know what? She needs me. And even though maybe it wasn't directed, maybe she didn't even recognize what was happening. But Abba comes down through the sun, stoops down into creation. And here's what he does. He opens his arms. Can I tell you this? No one was expecting this. They were expecting their version of him to get reinforced. But here is the God of creation concealed in his son. Just saying, hey, it's okay. Because the beauty of the gospel is he stoops down, becomes like us through the incarnation of the word becoming flesh. But then this story says that he raised himself up. And Jesus said, if I'm lifted up. Understand that when he was lifted up, it was not just arms stretched out to see how far they could go to put nails in it. But this was Abba's arms open wide for a daughter who was oozing the aching brokenness of humanity. And it was the father saying, hey, just come. Why? First, because you're my daughter, but second, because what's on you is not greater than what's in me. You you understand, guys, nothing you've done in Adam will ever be greater than what God did in Christ. Nothing. No matter how many times, and I'll be very careful to walk this line, because I know sometimes, again, as Paul would write, we don't excuse uh, things just in the name of grace, but can I tell you that grace, it will always shock your paradigm of what he's actually like. Because no matter how many times you've got a runny nose and need him, the father's arms are still right here just saying, I just want to be needed. There's nothing that you will ever do that will ever change the fact that you're my daughter or my own And Jesus raised himself up. And he said to them, whoever's without sin, what was Jesus doing at the cross? He was dealing with the sin issue. You understand the one who knew no sin was made to become sin. So in that moment, it wasn't that Jesus just died a spotless lamb. He died the worst of the worst. Because in this moment, he took on everything that was broken, knowing it wasn't greater than what was in him. So that when Jesus closed his eyes in death, it wasn't just the death to the son of God. It wasn't just the death of humanity. It was the death of the sickness that caused them to have the symptoms in the first place. And even in this story, he says, whoever's without sin casts the first stone. And then the Bible says he stoops down again. Look at this in the lens of the gospel. There's symptoms. The father comes, raises himself up at the cross, and then he stoops down again, buried in a tomb for three days. No one expected that. No one expected the Messiah. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for just a minute because the, the cultural context is, is, is tricky to navigate but you've got some who think he might be the one you've got a couple who uh at the point of the cross have already confessed he is the one i mean his own mom kind of is in on the news you've got the majority who think he's crazy right Right. got a lot of people who are threatened by his influence nevertheless he's shaken up everything He's healing the sick, raising the dead. People are being liberated uh, so much that it's impacting thousands who would follow him. And everything's changing for the first time. The daughter of the father is being liberated in her context because God in the flesh is walking with his own. But they don't even know. And things are changing. Things are shifting. Hope is starting to rise. And I can only imagine the journey of the disciples because Jesus comes and he gets so close and they're breaking bread with sinners and at the same time they're calling people back from the dead and uh, liberating people and they're scratching their heads at moments but they can't deny the redemptive power that's on Jesus. So I love some of the disciples' journey because it's evident that there were moments their expectations were thrown out the window. Right? But what they didn't expect, because they're probably riding the momentum of his ministry that's flourishing. I mean, you think, just put it in context, if you raised one dead guy, like, you think, okay, we're good. Like, we're not going to mess up again, you know? Like, and they've done it a couple times. I mean, let me put it this way. if You think if you've walked on water, your faith's probably stabilized, right so i can only imagine the disciples at some point teetered into this realm of okay he's got to be the one like we can't we can't keep doubting if he's the one right so they're probably just fresh uh into commitment of okay we're gonna do this thing god's about to just restore israel like all this expectation that we had is about to emerge and here's jesus hanging on a cross (laughs) they didn't expect that right Here's the one who was uh, the miracle worker who needs a miracle now himself. The one who healed the sick and raised the dead is dangling there. Being crucified by his own who didn't recognize him. You understand that Jesus could look down from the cross and say, Father, forgive them because they just don't know. Because he was not looking at the symptoms. He was looking at his daughter. He was looking at his sons. But they didn't expect to see him crucified. And they certainly didn't expect him to take a last breath. And I can only imagine the roller coaster of expectation being shattered. When a day has gone by and Jesus is still lifeless in the tomb. When a day and a half goes by. And everything has stopped. How could it have been the Messiah and he went out like this? He didn't expect that. And we know the story obviously doesn't end with the burial of Jesus. And just like in this story with the woman, the Bible says that he comes, he raises himself. He stoops down a second time. And then Jesus raises himself again. But I love in this story when Jesus raises himself again, he asks her a question Where are your accusers? To know that the resurrection of Jesus was the separation of what plagued humanity. And he tells her this statement. He says, go and sin no more. But he says it in a very particular environment. It's not just this burden of some new performance weight that she has to carry. He says it in an atmosphere where she can no longer see the condemnation that was around her. You know what that new atmosphere for us? It's in Romans. It says there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He put us in a context, in an atmosphere where we can look around. Colossians says this, hey, if you've been raised with Christ, we were crucified, we were buried. But if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind, set your heart on things above. It's the same moment this woman was encountering, except she's getting it a little bit early. But he raises himself back up and he says, hey, look around. Where is those who would throw stones? Where is the accusation? Because you cannot think about yourself the way that I think about you until you can look around. And stop defining yourself by the symptoms. But start defining yourself as a daughter. Colossians says, if you've been raised with Christ, let me say it like this. Since you've been raised, look around. Look at who you are to the Father. The God who comes to his own, but isn't even recognized Because either he was too human, he was too close, he was too patient, or he died. God wouldn't do that, right? The Messiah wouldn't come and die. But because they had certain expectations, they were missing God in the flesh. See, when we expect the wrong thing, we very often miss the right thing. And when we expect the wrong thing or expect God to be a certain way, we often miss the fact that he's sitting at our dinner table. Can I tell you the biggest life change happened? I mean, guys, come on. We spend most of our time trying to squeak one performance drop of change out of someone's life. But I tell you, if people can really realize that they're sitting in the presence of a God who opened wide his arms and said, hey, I'm not worried about what's on you getting on me. Just come to me. If people can realize that they're sitting with Him, it changes who we are in a way that performance never will even touch. See, what's true even now is God is with His own. And sometimes I don't even recognize it. Because it's tempting to slip back into these places where my mind looks at my symptoms. But if I can really build my life around the way the Father sees me, if you can do it around the way he sees you as a daughter, as a son, then we won't be nearly as impressed with our mess as we have been. Can I say this one more time? There's nothing you've ever done nor been in Adam that's greater than what God did in Jesus that will forever be true over our life. And so when we talk about expectation, you can expect that to be stable. You can expect the fact that he lowered himself, raised himself, went into the grave, and then resurrected without the curse, but with a restored creation that now is letting that be unveiled. You can expect the Father's arms to always, always be open wide. Because he's not afraid of getting you on him. That's what he did 2,000 years ago. Amen. He's not afraid of your stuff. It's who he is. Because it's who we are. I think. Sometimes when it comes to expectation. We. Sometimes don't realize. And I think about. Even their context. They were quote, expecting a Messiah. And they missed him, right? And truth be told, to this day, I'm not sure if we still get him, but I know he's better than I think he is and more stable than I would acknowledge he is. Sometimes I think we think our expectation is permission for him to show up or to come. But the truth is, he's already here. I'm not talking about the second coming of Jesus, just to be clear. I'm talking about the fact that he came to you to be with you. Not because you were clean, not because you had it figured out, not because you were at church, but because you are his own. And that's where our expectations have to be set. Amen. I'm going to pray for us, Father. God, I thank you that That's the name we get to call you. But this endearing name that carries weight to simply say Abba and it be true is our reality. God, to know that what happened through the son when the father shows up to take us on this journey of redemption God, it positions us to be able to expect the fullness of the freedom that you've called us into. And God, I pray over every person in this room, anyone online, God. God, anyone who's maybe in their story feels like that their symptoms need to get better before they can be embraced. And God, I pray that we would know your heart and the capacity of your grace to embrace people. To know that you're the God who's not afraid of getting us on you, but you're actually the God who invited us into you. And God, I pray, even over this generation, Father, that we wouldn't be tethered to performance, trying to get you to love us. But God, we would know that you love us whether we feel it or not. It would be our truth. And Father... God, I thank you. God, I thank you that we are your own. And God, I thank you that you can always separate the symptom from the daughter. And God, I pray that you would give us grace to do the same for our own journey, for our own narrative, and for one another, Father, that we would not be the church who throws stones, who weaponizes truth. Not in here and not even outside, Father, I pray that we would be the ones who carry truth, but also carry the way that you are, the way that you love. The way that you don't allow people to be defined by the accusations or the condemnation, but Father, give us grace and meekness and patience to love the world around us in a way that only you can. And last, Father, I pray that our capacity to embrace people with stuff on them would be so large that we would come to the realization that what's on the world around us will never be greater than the Christ that is within us because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And God, even a city like Charlotte, God, give us the capacity to love it, to love them in a way that they've never encountered. And we trust you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
0: You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.